0: Hello, everybody. Really happy to be in this conference and to yeah start the day for you or to end it from my side. Um, so I'm, in my talk, I will cover UX research from a really different approach from what you may be used, um, namely UX research with voice interaction. And in the particular case of, of my talk about social robots as well as the one, as you can see in the picture. So shortly, to give you an overview about um, what this talk will cover, I will start with you know, the basics about voice interactions and voice interfaces, so what they are, what are benefits of them, guide through three main challenges of UX research with voice, because um, yeah conducting it can be quite challenging, because there is bias in the uh, smart assistants and in robot design, as we have have heard as well in other talks yesterday about biases. Um, Then there are different methods which are necessary for voice interaction because it's not really the same than visual design. And the third challenge is really how to include users who are novel or non-users of a technology which is really new to them, like voice interaction. And at the end, I'm looking really forward to your questions. So, to shortly introduce you about myself, so that you know who is speaking here. Um, So, as Steve already said, I'm based in Germany, so in a different time zone. Um, I'm currently working at the University of Applied Science in Cologne, so at um, an academic side, doing my PhD there, and before I was um, a UX researcher at an e-commerce platform. So... Let's start with voice interaction. If you think about voice interaction, you probably will, will start with thinking about assistants like Siri or Alexa, um, but there's way more. So um, there comes voice interaction in many different devices in different contexts. So as you can see at the pictures, um, you can have a voice assistant on your smartphone, there is voice interaction in cars, or even in robots in all different cases. Um, and yeah also more products use voice like for example you can control a goPro with uh, voice interaction as well which may be really handy if you are like for example snowboarding somewhere and also control video games so there exist a variety of different games where you can really use your voice to uh, yeah guide for example an avatar which is which jumps higher the more you scream so yeah um, Voice is really a new way to interact with different interfaces. Um, And also from our point of view of market value, it's quite growing and important. Um, So the last year, the market value of speech and voice technology in the U.S. alone was already of 2.9 billion. And there's quite a growth expecting in the next years. So, uh, for example, Canada and Japan are the two countries which are like most growth expected and most importantly it's like spread across all age groups so it's not that it's only important for a specific type of um, product it's because of the variety it's also really important for all type of users. And um, to understand really voice interaction or the importance of it, of course, there needs to be UX research to do it. And what I encountered when I transitioned from the e-commerce, way of doing UX research, or I would say the traditional way of UX research with visual design, um, is that voice is really challenging because of many aspects. And three of the main challenges um, I will focus on today on what I have learned so far and how you can deal with these challenges. Um, and I propose that there are three main challenges with doing UX research with voice. So the first is that voice is really attributed to human characteristics and their appearance really shape expectations. So if you hear a voice, you, you always think about a human person. Um, That's like from psychological reasons. And also the appearance is really important on how you perceive actually an interaction design. Then the second problem or challenge, I would say, is that methods, uh, which I have used previously in my job, are just not suitable in the same way. So if you think about the classical method about usability testing with thinking aloud, that probably won't work if you have a smart device or a voice device hearing what the users say and you need to interact with that. Um, so there needs to be a different way of approaching um, UX research when doing voice, uh, voice interaction. And the third problem is that because voice is yeah, something more novel than touch, some users don't even have experience or Even more, they don't want to interact with it. So they really refuse to use this technology. Um, And there I also will share some methods on how to really include those users as well into your research. So let's start with the first one about voice and appearance. So um, I want to give you a, a question or a moment to think about Um, If you imagine Siri, Cortana, or Alexa as a person, how do they look for you? i give you some seconds. So really picture a person with a personality. Um, So I guess most of you have thought about a female person. And that's quite reasonable because... Most of the voice assistants which are on the market today are per default female. So, here you can see um, yeah, a compilation re- of, of different products like Siri, Cortana, and Alexa, Google Assistants. And what's important about here to notice is that all of them were female only voices at the release. So, when it started, there was no male option. Actually, that's also something I learned um, when I started in doing voice interaction that there is actually male voices of some of them. So you can actually change Siri to speak in a male voice. But the default is normally um, in fema- female person. And you might wonder: okay, why do they not change simply the voice to a male person, like switching the voice track? Because there exist like a lot of different um, yeah, artificial voices and different um, different genders, um, but it's not simple as that. As you can see, for example, as well here from Siri, it was released 2011 and 2013, so nearly two years later, um, there was a functional male option. Um, so it's more than two, nearly two years of development to have a functional male voice, and the reason is that adjusting the gender of an of a voice interface is way more than simply switching the voice track to another gender. Because men and women really use different words. Like we have this typical saying, they are they speak different languages. Um, it's not a different language, but uh, there are different use of the languages. So, for example, women tend to use more um, personal pronouns, like I, you, us uh, she. And men use more quantifiers, so, for example, one, some, or ten. So, if you would have a male voice with a feminine phrasing, which would be the case if you just take um, theory, for example, in a female voice and change it to a male, that would be really distracting for any user <laughs> because everybody would be thinking, that's something weird about the voice. Um, so there needs to be really effort to create a male voice, which is or female, under conscious as well, uh, which is really um, having the gender of the voice itself. So you may ask yourself now, but why are they all female? So why is this bias in design here? Um, so the the companies behind there. Uh, do not give a reasonable answer for that, but there are, of course, some research in that area. So, one possible answer is that uh, we want technology to help us while remaining in control. And then, aside from that, there comes the fact that people tend to perceive male voices as authority figures. Um, so, they tell you the answers to your problems. And female voices are perceived as helping to solve our problems. So if you look back into here to think, okay, if we want technology to help us, it's more reasonable to opt for a female voice because it's this helping aspect, according to research. So that, from a starting point, might seem fine to you, but there is really consequences in that. So um, the problem is that Gender design is also could solidify stereotypes if we mirror this behavior into conversations between humans. So if you have Siri or Alexa, try to remember how do you talk to them? Is it in a nice way or is it mostly commands like put an alarm or set the clock or a timer? Um, So it's probably more this commanding and short way of talking and the the real concern about here is that people become used to interact with female agents in that way and transfer this into um yeah into a way of talking with human so with female re- humans in this case as well um so that's really an important aspect to consider that the gender really influences how it's perceived and how Pe- people and users really talk to your interface, and therefore there is also research regarding having, um, yeah, a genderless voice or a neutral voice. Um, so, for example, to have to give you an overview, there is the masculine or feminine um, amplitude on how a voice is really perceived, and there is a neutral spot in between, and um, there is this. Yeah, video or this research about a genderless voice, how they call it. And I invite you, I hope the voice (laughs) or the the audio will be set, um, to hear some seconds about this voice and think about what do you think, who is talking in this case? Is this genderless? Is this a woman? Is it a man? Um, Let's see.
1: You, the world's first generalist voice assistant. Think of me like Siri or Alexa, but in a male movie.
0: I'm created for a future, and no longer So, I guess some of you have heard a female person. If you heard it, I hope it worked. Um So, some of you might have heard a female or male person, and the reason behind that is that. It's supposed to be a genderless voice, but actually it's gender ambiguous, which means that people really perceive it in a different way. So if you would display that, for example, to everybody here at the conference, close to 50% hear it as female voice, 50% as male voice. So it's not neutral because the voice itself cannot be neutral, but it's going up, it's approaching this problem of the bias because if we have something which is in between so to say or like in can be ambiguous depending on what the user hears that's already an approach to really overcome this bias um so until now we have talked about voice itself but most of those yeah voice interfaces actually come with a device so uh, maybe Siri or Alexa, not. But um, other are really like physical object, and there comes another challenge. Um, so if you consider, for example, in this case, social robots, which is the area of my PhD, um, they are they have an appearance, and this appearance is really human. If you see here, for example, the the child with the with the robot, you implicitly will have some adjectives in your mind thinking, oh, this robot is cute or it looks friendly. So there is are some yeah, expectations which are created based on the appearance. And therefore, if, for example, we make changes to the interaction design or the, the voice design, it is really important to as well study the appearance which uh, and how this influences your design. To understand really its impact. So for example, um, if you change a dialogue flow um, and always perform it with the same robot, you may not know how that flow would work on a different robot. So what I do in this case is really have conversations like with a method like interviewing, um, showing pictures to participants, Um, and talking about appearance, about associations users have with certain objects. And in this case, it's robots, but it can be anything. It can be your product, it can be a glass of water. Um, Really talking about if you see this object, this product, what do you think? Um, And it's really interesting to see that the appearance really shapes the expectations. So, for example, these two robots on the left side, which have arms, um, users wondered, okay, what are these robots even doing with the hands? So the, only because they already have hands, there is expected some functionality behind this. Um, and in the other case, if you, for example, have a robot, which just is basically uh, a head, um, there is not the expectation that the robot should do something with its hands. So in this case, the appearance shapes the um, the expectations about functionality. And that's really relevant to consider um, how you want to design that. And as well, um, this appearance creates associations with yeah, with other things. So for example, uh, a quote which I really liked from a user was that um, this one on the, the left bottom, that, that was it looks like Mike from Monstering. And if you once have this image in mind, um, users do attribute like a personality as well to that robot. So if you think about this funny mic, probably you will have some some yeah associations of memory and maybe unconsciously as well talk to the robot in a way that remembers you to it. So there is really a lot to consider about the appearance itself and to study that in isolation from the research to understand its impact. But as well here... Um, maybe you recognize some of the the robots you see in this picture from different movies or from uh, comics. Um, There's really as well uh, a tendency in the appearance in this case as well. So if you look at this picture, even if it's a a drawing, um, pay attention to the color. So which colors are presented the most in this case? The fact is that here, and the same uh, is true for our commercial robots. Most robots currently sold are either white or have a metallic appearance, and that's also relevant because people, per- users, perceive that robots really have a race. So, um, it it may yeah it may doesn't seem like really object or like rational to you. But users really do behave different depending on if if a white or a colored robot is standing in front of them. Um, And you may ask why, if it's only a machine, like it's in the end, it's like metal and it's like really like a machine. But because they look like humans, we treat them as humans and as so-called social actors. And to those, we um, we attribute a race. And as well here, it's really relevant to understand the impact of the appearance so that you can use it in your product design in this case um, and to adapt as well and to not have this racial bias in your product. And to investigate that, um, in this case, this picture was actually um, Took, took today uh, in my current research, um, there's as well the possibility in robots to really vary the way they look like. In this case, from the racial bias to overcome that and observe how users react to that and in which way maybe gender ter- stereotypes are really um, yeah, produced by that. And as well here, um, there is the gender bias and gender gaps. But interestingly, in the other way around then with voice assistants. So voice assistants, a Siri and also on, are rather female, while robots are rather perceived as masculine. <laughs> that's really like a really big gap into this this aspect. Mm, and also here, that's problematic because. Um, yeah, we have just a, a bias or a gap between how robots are designed and how users perceive them. So here it's important to, to really study which and how the appearance shapes your product or the expectations of your users. And that's uh, a good way to do with varying the gender of, of your product if it's possible in this case. So that was an um uh, with an experiment which we conducted, which was in a metro station in Hamburg, in a German city, and we displayed for some weeks a male avatar which was responding to users' requests, and some weeks a female, and then we analyzed what what does change. So, uh, do users behave differently, and um, if so, how? And really, the topics of conversation with this agent, even if it's in the same location, um, it's different. So the woman is asked about their relationship status, <laughs> while the male is asked for where's the next part. So we have really this topic, um, yeah, dependent behavior um, and dependency of the gender. And even if it's only in this case, like a picture, like a, it was an avatar, which was moving. Um, But here, that's really relevant to know in this case so that you can adapt to it. And here, it was easy to change because it was a display. And But even in robots, it's possible to really change the gender or challenge it a bit. And what I like to do (laughs) is dressing my robots uh, with my clothes, actually. So here you can see two pictures of of a robot which we have in the laboratory. In the place where I'm working, um, once with like a head, which is like more like a beanie and the other like a scarf and wait a female. And already this clothing, even if the face is the same, already changes the perception and the way of interacting with it. So... Here you have seen now that the voice of the device and the device itself, so the robot or the appearance of it, shape expectations of users, and it's really important to consider them. However, everything is always set into an environment which also has an influence. So in this case as well, if you think about um, yourself, do you behave the same in a public space than at your home? I guess not, and <laughs> that's normal and uh, really common. Um, and that's also the case for voice assistant. So, in uh, here again, about um, that's numbers about Germany in this case. So, voice assistant usage is thirty-eight percent lower in public spaces than at the private home. So, using Siri and so on um, in the public space is way less common. And that, for me personally, is a challenge because that's my uh, way of doing research. I'm researching robots in the public space um, and therefore voice interaction. But still here, it's important to understand why is it lower? So what are factors why users don't want to interact in that context? And there's a lot of social norms about group behavior or privacy concerns um, which can be observed during during field research. And there is also the need for doing dedicated research about the context itself. So one approach which I took here to understand the influence of the context was to do um, video study. So I recorded two different uh, videos in these cases from some interaction with a robot. So there was a user talking to a robot and it was exactly the same dialogue in both videos, except that in the lower one, there were people walking around. So you can see myself there in the suitcase and also some colleagues of mine. Um, And then the research question that I had was, how does the context, so really the presence of other people in this case, impact how the robot is perceived. And theoretically, it shouldn't, if you think about it. It's, the robot says exactly the same, the users say the same, it's the same scene. So your interaction design basically remains the same. However, the robot is perceived as friendlier and warmer if other people are around. Or an apology is also um, yeah, more accepted when other users are present. So, the context is really, really relevant to consider during the research. So, the takeaway from here is really that the interaction, voice interaction, but every interaction happens in a context um, with an interface which has an appearance and a gender, and both of them shape user expectations. And the goal is to not eliminate or delete these factors, um, it's radar like to really study them and to know their impact. And I invite you think about that, be aware of uh, of those three things in your product. So do you know where your product is used? So which is a context where every, every user would use your app? And what would be one where you would say, nobody would ever use my e-commerce shop, I don't know, like in uh, in an airplane <laughs> because I have no um, Wi-Fi, for example, or um, so which are the other contexts. And the other question is, um, is your product female or male? Because even if you don't intendedly have designed it, users will perceive it in that way. So that can be either because of the colors, about the UX writing, um, but there is a perceived gender in the products. And it's important to know them and to consider them and to include those into your research. So now that you um, yeah, have seen that appearance, gender, and context is relevant, the question is just how to study all of those. I've already seen some methods which I have used, such as interviews or really surveys. Um, But there are more challenges when really doing voice interaction research. So before, when I was in the e-commerce area, I really liked to do usability testing with Thinking aloud. It was like my go-to method to really have quickly feedback about prototypes, about um, shaping the design process. But in this case... Um when I started to think about the first disability test to do with the, with the robot, I was thinking, well, if the person is speaking to the robot, the, the participant cannot speak at the same time to myself, explaining to me what he's thinking. So he cannot express himself or herself verbally. Um, and that's why I started to really focus more on non-verbal behavior. So as you can see, um, that was some pictures from a usability test, which I did in in the lab. And um, I really pay more attention now or in in general with voice interaction to the uh, mimic of the participants and how they they look when they are interacting with the product. So in this case, in the first one, he was smiling because the robot was explaining something um, interesting for him. And in the second, he was really confused, surprised looking at myself because I was sitting next to him um, because it was a confusing answer from the the robot. And it's really relevant um, to have a look at that and note down basically as well the exact sentences which either the robot or the participant said. Because it's really difficult for participants to remember what has happened when you talked afterwards about it. Because if I um, say now, okay, what exactly, please repeat exactly the same sentence that I said five minutes ago. That's quite difficult, right? So you might know, you hopefully know about what I have talked, but Repeating exactly the same words is really challenging to remember. Um, and what really helps here is taking more notes than, than ever before or even having a second person really taking down notes um, so that you can retalk with this to the users. Another aspect during usability tests which are relevant for visual design as well is really choosing the wordings and the tasks carefully. Because what could happen in the situation, so this robot, for example, was designed to be a museum customer service guide. Um, And one question, for example, was to know the opening times of the museum. And if I would have phrased the task as, please ask how long the museum is open, the participant would probably say, hello, how long is the museum open? But that's not what uh, I wanted to research because it also really matters on how they approach the problem, which words they are using. Um, So here I work really with scenarios, which are radar, for example, imagine you are at at a museum and you don't know how much time you have left. What do you do? So I don't say, for example, what do you say? Because maybe the participant does something before really talking to the interface, um, which is not about verbal interaction. And that's also an aspect you would miss. So here it's really important to frame and think even more carefully about how to formulate a task, which is not leading to the user to say a specific sentence. Another method, is the field observation. So it's really going into the context. And I call it like as turning the incognito modus on. <laughs> so being there in the context where the product is used, but not being directly visible as a researcher while respecting the privacy of the user, of course. So in this case, again, in the metro station, which I showed you before, um, here you can see um, one researcher in incognito modus. <laughs> So that was a colleague of mine and um, we were both lo- located in this metro station. We were there quite long, so it's c- quite tiring to keep on hearing metros every five minutes <laughs> and being under underground. Um, but we were both acting as bystanders. So she was basically always close to that um, yeah, avatar in that case to be able to hear what users were saying and I was positioned a bit before to see what was happening. Um, so we could actually really see what users were doing while they were not being really aware that we were there. <laughs> but of course, because of data privacy, when once we had this observation, we approached them, revealed as researcher, and asked for the permission to use the notes. Um, but that's really relevant to see because. Users do behave different if they know that a researcher is that there, so it's a similar effect which you might have if you're doing um, a test in a UX lab and you're really having a person or a remote testing, and the opposite, for example, with a diary study where there is not really the researcher on site, that produces really different results, and that's also a reason why data in general is really important to understand, so in this case, voice data or also interaction patterns um, to see this user behavior without the so-called Halsen effect, so the effect that users behave different or people in general behave different when they're feeling observed. And in the case of, of visual design or web design, it's all the tracking about the website, but Visual, like um, voice interaction, also has this tracking methods. So, in this case, here you can see what is being recorded when users are talking to a robot in the case um, of the museum. So, um, this dot, the, the colored one, is the robot, um, and the others are users. And here in this case, I really look on how users approach the robot, like in which way is their gaze and how they are positioned next to each other. And that's really important to see and understand without me being there, because if I would be there, the group will already um, position in a different way because they adapt socially um, to the group behavior and to social norms. So it's really relevant to have like the proper tracking data um, to understand what users really do. And another approach to really uh, yeah, understand or kind of replicate and get into the feeling of, of users talking to a system as, is to do kind of a role play, so to replicate the conversation. Um, so you can imagine that in the kind of, of research which I'm doing with social robots um, as in tracking or output we have what users ask basically to the robot and the response of the robot. And similar is probably true for a lot of other um, voice interface devices. So um, what is an approach to do and get more into the user understanding is that one person of, of your group is the robot and the other is the user. And then you talk, basically you repeat what user said um, to try to understand how frustrating it can maybe as well be if the voice interface says something totally wrong or um, doesn't understand you. So, overall, there are like different methods which are suitable for UX research with voice. So, it's possible to do surveys with different conditions where you can apply video or as well audio um, stimulus to show to the participants. It's important to focus on nonverbal behavior specifically for um, voice interaction, then there is the possibility to do field observation in incognito and also um, doing a, of course data analysis, so including data into your research. So if you study all of these uh, voice interactions and with different type of methods, there is still another challenge left, <laughs> namely that Users have no prior experience or even refuse voice interaction. So, as the technology is quite new or are also like still not so commonly in some countries. Of course, that really depends on which country. Um, some users really don't know how to interact with uh, with a voice assistant, and or are really afraid as well of a robot which is standing in front of them. So. Um, to include those users, however, um, it's really important to kind of brief them in a way. So, because if you imagine, for example, a person who has never used the internet before and comes to an e commerce shop, you probably are not really looking into the, the details of your design or interaction flows on the web page because that person would be really focusing on how is the internet even working. And the same happens if you have a voice interaction device. So what I started to do is we did to schedule voice trainings, I call it like that, sessions beforehand. So I invite users who have never used voice before um, to short sessions like half an hour the day before or the week before um, where I show different devices or different, yeah, different devices, different robots and mostly not the one where you don't research with um, and, yeah, basically train how to do simple interactions with that case so that when it comes to really researching your design with the, with the intended robot or intended um, interaction, that person already knows how the technology works. And that's also a really great opportunity for foundational research or product discovery because, um, yeah, there is like really the basics of, the, of seeing for the first time, for example, a robot or the question which arises like, when do I know how I can talk or how does this even work? And that's one side. So users who have no experience with that But another really common as well is rejection. So user, non-users in this case, persons who don't want to use that technology, who are afraid of um, losing the job because there are robots um, in the public space um, or just don't think it's too complicated. And here I try to really understand in deep the motivation behind that. So what is the reason for really refusing to, inter- uh, to interact with the product? And to have that in a structured way, I make use of so-called non-user personas um, from Augustine et al., which are traditional personas which are extended with aspects such as product criticism, reasons for non-use, and resistance level. So especially product criticism is really, yeah, I think also for, for product owners, a nice way to really have this non-users or rejectors present during your design process. Because criticism is kind of a backlog of ideas you could do for product discovery. Like how could you convince or how could you el- eliminate and delete these reasons for non-using and... Converting this non users to users. And regarding the resistance level, there's also different aspects of resistance. So maybe somebody doesn't really want to use voice interaction because they feel it's against their moral um, expectations. And maybe someone else just doesn't really know how it works, but could be using it. Um, So that's also the possibility to classify users and non-users into a user map uh, where you could really say okay is this person in this case from the lower one is it a rejector or resistor or is it a really a user who is already using it and wants to keep on using it and in this way you can really position the person who are, you are doing an interview with for example to understand um, where they are in their Yeah, in their rejection phase. (laughs) And that's really relevant to include because it gives you so many ideas about uh, what can be improved about the product. So overall, um, I want to take you home like a few things from here. First of all is that voice is attributed to human characteristics. So whenever you hear a voice, your brain automatically triggers gender, personalities, and many other things which come unconsciously. Then the second is that gender, appearance, and context really matter for every product, especially for voice. But context is also one factor, which is, from my opinion, often not considered so much into research when we are doing it in a lab or remotely. Um, It's normally in the private setting, but or products are used everywhere or can be used in a variety of contexts. Um, The third is that it's always important to combine nonverbal and verbal behavior so that you have different types of of data and user feedback, which you can include or deduct your, um, your results from there. And the last one is really to include everybody in your research so every person is relevant to a research no matter if it's a rejector, a person who has never used your your voice interface or your biggest fan of the product so everybody contributes to research and with that i'm looking really forward to your questions
1: thanks so much lydia that was wonderful um, we have a, a few questions and we have a bit of time which is which is wonderful um, can we begin uh there's, there's a, a few questions around yeah. the um uh that sort of notion of of cultural and uh gender bias um that a, a few people have sort of picked up on so um let's start with uh jared's question he um they ask with all the attendant inherent racial and gender issues, why should robots look like humans at all? Why not develop a new thing entirely?
0: That's a really good question. So there are as well robots or avatars which doesn't look as human at all. So there is as well research about, um, yeah, neutral robots or, for example, having an animal which talks or a comic and these are also well deployed, but the reason for having yeah human robots is that when you see a human, you also behave somehow like in, in with those social norms or you're we know what we can expect from a human talking to a human. But what would happen if a human talks to a pet? It's like a really different way of of, of interacting. Uh, where there's not so much research and knowledge about how this type of interaction look like. Um, So I think that the main approach was to really start with robots which look like humans to really have the the similar patterns basically um, for the interaction.
1: Okay. Um, Kai asked the question, would previous bad experience with early or incompetent voice interfaces draw people away from embracing voice interfaces that have come a long way since.
0: Yeah, definitely and I have observed that already many times in my research like um for example right now uh, we are we are doing a prototype testing in a museum and users do approach a robot and start asking one question and if it doesn't really come directly to the um to a good answer users are like okay that's not interesting it doesn't work um, and they're directly leaving so the first impression is like really important like to yeah to to nail that one uh, because if not the expectations are that okay that's a technology which doesn't work anyway so i don't mm-hmm. want to try that out
1: wonderful uh, Claire asked the question, what role does trust play in terms of people's willingness to interact with, with certain kinds of devices?
0: Yeah, also a big topic in, in research. So there is a lot of um, yeah trust research in the um, human-robot interaction community. Um, I personally think it's really important to be transparent actually about uh, things like data privacy about as well expectations about what the robot can actually do. So um, if I trust the robot, for example, that um, I can hand them a glass of water and he will grab it and then it fails and it falls down. And the next time I would be, well, I'm better not giving you anything. Um, so I think it's about really clearly communicating capabilities of the system and as well showing the user what is happening. So basically similar to yeah other places to really transparently show users what is happening.
1: Mm. And uh, um, Claire raised the concern around sort of previous examples where um, these devices are, are always listening um, and the that sort of data privacy that comes with that, um, especially when it's not like the the listening isn't held locally, but is actually sent back to a a, a central service for for analysis and 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 response.
0: Mm, yeah, that's yeah, that's a problem with the commercial voice interfaces, so where it's mm. not really clear what is happening with the data. um mm. so in my case, we are doing like the research like for academic purposes, so we always really like display and have like a large uh, attention we are recording and really informing the users what is happening with the data and storing it locally but mm-hmm. I really agree that a lot of devices are like a black box like you don't know where your data is going and uh, what is happening with it and as you can see there is probably some tracking and analysis behind that um to really understand how users behave with it mm-hmm. so yeah
1: that's a problem. Um, Catherine asked a slightly uh, tangential question, um, but like obviously related. But um, they ask: Is it, Do you have any idea why some countries or languages have gone with male as the default?
0: With with female as the default, or um, yeah. Um, the, the,
1: the question was whether, like, where, why they've gone with male as default. But I, I guess either
0: yeah it's yeah it's not really clear like i really did uh, started to do research as well when i when i found this out um but there is no really um yeah attribution to it so one idea which i read some uh which was about that for example french is a male um yeah it was one of the ones where it was male um mm-hmm. and apparently there is yeah, favorite to see, for example, as well, male teachers. <laughs> so it's like a bit like this teaching function uh, could also be an aspect of that, why it's choose with male. But, yeah, there is no clear answer to that.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Lydia, thank you so much for the um, the presentation and the, the Q&A. Um, and thank you for staying with us so late into your evening.
0: Yeah, sure. Thanks for inviting me.
1: (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks. Bye.